This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. It is the Jeff Merrick Show, but Jeff Merrick is not here. He will be back on Monday as he makes his trek back from Owen Sound. Got to ask him about those ring fries. Uh, Luke Fox from Sportsnet joining me on the line here as he gets ready to take off to head to wonderful Montreal. And I only say wonderful Montreal because I haven't been there in a while. And uh, I think they still like me there. Luke, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I'm always excited to go to Montreal, especially there's not too many places better than the Bell Centre on a Saturday night. Um, And I'm not just talking about the Shane show. The the Leafs-Habs, even though the Habs are rebuilding, that game is always a doozy. And uh, the fact that we've had three fun Leaf games in a row, starting with that Boston game, I'm pretty excited. Yeah, it should be a good one. I mean, Montreal is going to have something to play for because, I mean, they always get up to play the Leafs, and I understand that. Uh, Last night was not pretty for them, but it was pretty for the Toronto Maple Leafs and specifically Austin Matthews. And, I mean, it's pretty obvious. Like, the the first goal he scored was incredible. The second one in tight top corner, that is Austin Matthews to a T. But it really feels like he's going to go on a tear again. And dare I say that even after a slow start, 50 still in the cards here for him. I'm not going to rule that out. No, me neither. And I mean, I think right now he's on pace for about 44, but he hasn't heated up yet, right? He hasn't had one of those stretches where you're like feeling every single night Austin Matthews is going to put one past the goalie. And the fact that he got two last night speaks to the Toronto Maple Leafs recipe for victory, right? They need solid goaltending, which they got, and they need game breakers. And Austin Matthews is absolutely a game breaker. The Winnipeg Jets, uh, had the the control of the play. Um, the puck was in the leap zone for the bulk of the first period. They got 16 shots. Samsonov played well. And then eight seconds into the second, Austin Matthews breaks uh, into the zone and puts it right through one of the best goalies in the whole world. Uh, he scores the very next one, beats Hellebuck clean again. And you're starting to see um, the Austin Matthews that we saw so much of last season. And I think a lot of this has to do with him just taking those two games and the one hard practice off. Uh, You know, load management is kind of a a bad phrase to use in hockey circles, but whatever was nagging him, he said that mentally and physically, just taking a little break has done wonders for his game. And then you look at the score sheet, and he has goals in four straight. He has points in eight straight. Um, You know, he's trailed his own team for the, the league leading goals for a long time. William Nylander held the crown and now he's right there with them with 24 and we're starting to see the Austin Matthews that strikes fear into goalies again and I, I think the one thing that gets underrated about Matthews is and this is not like I feel like this is a a skill that is from yesteryear but he's so good at it we see so many times that that the nice goal is is up under the bar. Like, I get that. But Austin Matthews has an uncanny ability to score five hole-on goalies. And I don't know if it's the release. I don't know if it's just how the velocity on the shot. It's probably a combination of both. But I don't think we talk enough about how incredible that talent is to score five hole on these goalies who are so good down low in today's game. Yeah, and it's not a fluke. Like, after the game, he said that he saw that opening there and just fired it. He admitted, right, like he is he's shooting at a career-low shooting percentage this season, and it's made people speculate if, if that wrist is bothering him again, the one he had off-season surgery on, um, you know, two summers ago. But, uh, you know, he said he just he saw an opening and just fired it, and he said that he's, his accuracy hasn't been there all season, 
and he obviously is starting to get it back. And I think there's there's an element of confidence too, right? You get that first one in, you you don't hesitate to shoot the next one. So um, you know his teammates are are taking notice. Michael Bunting, who is, has been excellent on his line as a complimentary piece, was just saying like it's so nice to see him ripping it again because even though he was his production wasn't horrible by any means there were a lot of deeks and you know we hadn't seen that signature shot of his uh that wrister that that's so deadly and so fast and so accurate he puts it exactly where he wants to put it um so i think that is is a massive sign like sheldon Keefe after the game said this is the closest offensively we've seen matthews to what he was last year um, so I think that's something for Leaf fans to get excited about. Yeah, I think we're like he I believe he's like three goals off of what his pace was last year and he scored over 60. So, I mean, he's like he was at that same point. I mean, three games difference and our three goals difference from this point in the season. So I feel like we're going to get an incredible second half. Um, you mentioned Michael Bunting there and and he is due a contract next uh, this offseason and the Leafs have a, a plethora of UFAs up front. And I, I feel like they can get a deal done for Michael Bunting. But what does that extension look like? Are we, are we looking at maybe something like they try and do something like the yarn croak deal where they give him more years at a, at a lower value? Or do you think he's going to try and hit it big because he's having a career year. He's been incredible. I know playing with Austin Matthews and, and William Nylander is, is good for your numbers, but he's producing, and that's not always an easy thing to do with great players because you got to play on their level. Yeah, no, he knows his role, right? Like they've they've tried guys with with their superstars, and they haven't all fit. You know, Michael Bunting knows exactly what he needs to bring. He needs to stick up for Matthews every once in a while. He has to go to the dirty areas, whether it's in the corners or in front of the net, get some greasy goals. Uh, I think his hands are underrated. You know, he got a couple primary assists on those Matthew goals last night. And, you know, he, he's an effective offensive player. And then you th- toss in the fact that he draws right now, he's drawing the second most penalties of any player in the whole league. Pierre-Luc Dubois is the only one ahead of him. Uh, and that puts a really dangerous power play um, out there. So he, he brings a lot to this team. And I have to think that Kyle Dubas is looking over at Edmonton and seeing Simon is giving to the Oilers and saying, I can't do this again. I can't just keep Michael Bunting as an own rental. Yes, he was a great bargain find. Yes, I got him for a, a steal of a deal on that, that two-year contract as a UFA. But this is a, a Scarborough kid, a, a guy that absolutely loves being a Toronto Maple Leaf. I think you trade... Um, term for cap hit i think you go are willing to go as long as eight years to keep his cap hit reasonably low we're coming out of the the flat cap and at the pandemic that, that flattened the cap and i think that michael bunting on a long-term deal won't hurt the team um and i i think both sides there will be a desire to get this one done because yeah you could say oh well i'll just find the next michael bunting but you you don't always like uh they're hard to find, and and I think a guy that loves being elite this much and it fits so well with the best player on your whole team and off the ice, they're like best buddies on the team. I think it just makes a ton of sense to find a way to make it work. I wonder, I wonder if they could do like a Nick Paul deal with him. And Nick Paul's was was yeah. lengthy. Uh, I think it was eight years, but he's like three point one five million, or sorry, it's seven years at three point one five million. I, I wonder if 
if that's something that Bunting would be interested in. Because the other thing that Nick Paul has that Michael Bunting doesn't is he has versatility because he can play center in the wing. And I'm not saying that Michael Bunting is worth less, but I do wonder, because I, I always find it tricky with players because they want to make as much money as possible. But if you're Michael Bunting, do you want to make more money or attach yourself to a better situation? And I, I find it hard to find that balance because the window for a lot of these guys is very short to make as much money as possible. And I do wonder how much that plays in for a guy like Michael Bunting. And his window is shorter, right? Like, yeah, yeah he was, a, he was a Calder finalist last year, but he's a pretty old rookie last year. Like this is his one chance. And he's basically, you know, relatively speaking compared to NHL guys that are playing in your top six, he's made no money in his career. So they have, they can't disrespect him. I can't see something in the threes. I, I like the, in general, the format of a Nick Paul deal in terms of going long to keep the cap hit low. And of course, the Maple Leafs can provide incentives in terms of money up front and signing bonuses and make it appeal to them that way um, because their deep pockets allow them to do that. But it won't start with a three. And, like, no, this, state, this and no state tax in Florida also makes that deal a lot more palatable for Nick Paul. Let's not forget that, too. Yeah, that great, great point. Uh, but I, I think he's he's valuable enough that he's playing himself above the the three point something. We're, we're I think it starts with a, a four. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I totally, I totally agree with that. Um, you mentioned the goaltending earlier and getting solid goaltending is part of the formula here. Um, Ilya Samsonov was as as solid as you could get in the net last night without getting a shutout and. He he's the better goalie at this moment, but we've seen stretches where we've seen Matt Murray be really good and, and Samsonov be just okay. But if how do you think that this looks going into the playoffs? Like let's say both goalies are healthy. Like, is there a situation where we look at it and go, there they may split starts? Or do you believe that the organization wants one guy to say, This is my job, you need to take it away from me, especially as it comes to the playoffs? I think the organization wants Matt Murray to be the guy. They're the guy they chose first. He has more term. He's getting paid better. He has two Stanley Cup rings. He's more experienced, um, particularly in the playoffs. Uh, but saying that, I think there's a shorter leash uh, on Matt Murray than there was when Jack Campbell was their starter in the playoffs or when Freddie Anderson was their starter. Those, those seasons, it was like this team is going to live and die by their game one starter. This will be the shortest leash, and that is – due to the play of both guys. Matt Murray has had bouts of inconsistency, and Samsonov has been phenomenal in this, in this prove-it deal, particularly at home, where he's now 12-0-1. He hasn't lost in regulation at home. And Sheldon Keep, I asked him about it after the game last night, and he said, we don't exactly know why um, Matt Murray has been so good on the road and Samsonov's been so good at home, and we're trying to mix up the starts so that they get uh, more experience in both places but I can't deny that it's a thing right now. Um, and you wonder if that continues. I mean, there's still a half season to go. That could even out. But you wonder if that continues, if that actually plays into the coach's mind about who to start on at home or on the road. That would be so wild, Luke. Yeah, like that would it be would. like, okay, we know Samson is getting the first two games at home and we absolutely know Matt Murray's getting the first two games on the road. Like that would be something that we've never seen before. Like I, I remember Minnesota when they rotated Manny Fernandez and, um, and Dwayne Rollison. And that, that was something that we had never seen before, but this would be next level. And that would, I mean, it would be brilliant.
It would certainly make for great talk radio. Um, okay, so we're getting closer and closer to the trade deadline, and I know people want to say, oh, they, they're looking to add a defenseman. And while I don't think that that's not the case, I could make the argument that in previous playoff failures, they've, they've had trouble scoring. And I still, I, I mean, Yarn Croak has been good, but I, to me, there's still a hole on that wing with John Tavares and Mitch Marner. And dare I say, I wonder if they make the decision on trying to add a top six forward. Yeah, it's a really fascinating debate. And I think in a perfect world, they're, they'd like to make two ads. You just don't know if they, A, have the assets, B, have the cap space to make that happen. But, you know, the way Kyle Dubas thinks, I'm sure he's looking at both avenues. I know originally when uh, Jake Muzzin went down and was shifted to long-term injury reserve, their first thought was, we need to bring in a different types, type of defenseman. They have plenty of good puck movers, guys that can jump in the rush, contribute offensively. But, you know, you look at that Boston game in particular, they, I think they're still missing a little bit of that rugged element um, you know, kind of a guy who plays in the mold of Mark Giordano, but is hopefully, well, he will be younger, but hopefully a, a little bit faster than, than that. I think they need another one of those types, like a Muzzin type, um, just because the style of play gets a little more rugged in the playoffs, and you need a guy who will box out, block shots, um, stuff out cycles. But you're absolutely right. The second line left wing spot has been an issue uh, heading into the last offseason, it was the biggest question for me heading into camp, and really it hasn't been solved. Uh, Kelly Yonkrock had a nice little two-week run there where he was playing really well. Uh, he's actually absent from practice today, but he's cooled off a little bit, and I think if you're trying to win a Stanley Cup, you need to make an upgrade there. So it's going to be fascinating. I think what's really interesting is there's so many legit top six forwards interesting pieces that could be available, whether it's Patrick Kane or Jonathan Taves or Bo Horvat or Ryan O'Reilly, Timo Meyer. Like there's some real like big names available at this tra- trade deadline or should be. Um, and it's just a matter of is Dubas going to be aggressive enough to pay the price to get one of those game breaking type of type of forwards, or if he's going to hold back and say, no, I don't want to trade my first round pick. I don't want to trade Matthew Nyes. And if he tries to just find a, a smarter, cheaper, complimentary piece, I, I think it's going to be fascinating because I really don't know how big the appetite is there to swing for the fences. Here's my prediction. Gustav Nyquist and uh, Vladislav Gavrikov. Those are the, those are the guys. That's who they're going to end up with. Cause I don't think they want to part with those guys, but they, I think they would be good fits. I, I think Gavrikov is especially, and I just wonder if there's going to be a bidding war because there's so few Gavrikovs out there. Yeah. Like you think about the price uh, Ben Sherratt went for. Like Gavrikov, you know, he's not even having a great season, but he is the type of guy that you want in the playoffs. And the Leafs saw that firsthand in the bubble, in the 2020 bubble. Yeah. Gavrikov came up big for Columbus in that series. And I think when someone does it to you, you remember that a little bit more. Hey, they went and got Nick Foligno, right? I think with part because of what Felino did to them in that bubble. So I'm sure the name Gavrikov uh, is one that the front office will be targeting. For sure. Uh, Luke, I know you got to catch a flight here, so thanks for taking some time. Uh, enjoy a Chien Chiode for me and enjoy Montreal yeah. this weekend. I'll have, I'll have a third one just for you. That yeah, a boy. Thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs>
I appreciate that. There he goes. Luke Fox from Sportsnet uh, as he gets ready to head to Montreal for Leafs and Habs tomorrow, which is a part of Hockey Day in Canada. And when we look at the lineup tomorrow, uh, Lightning at Flames kick things off at 3 o'clock. That will be um, on CBC and Sportsnet. The Leafs and Canadians, as we talked about, is at 7 o'clock. Sportsnet East Ontario Pacific and CBC and uh, Jets at Senators. That'll be on Sportsnet one Sportsnet West and city. And then at 10 o'clock, the Oilers at Vancouver, that will be on all Sportsnet channels and CBC and city TV as well. Speaking of hockey day in Canada, when we come back, the legend himself, Ron McLean joins us as we look at hockey day in Canada, his time in Owen sound so far his favorite parts about hockey day in Canada, because Ron's a very, very smart guy, very intellectual and intelligent man. And I'm sure he will give us a wonderful thought on that. And we'll talk about the Canadian teams and who might have the best chance at bringing the Stanley cup back home. Shh, It's the Toronto Maple Leafs. Don't tell anybody. I don't care about anybody else. It's the Toronto Maple Leafs. That's all. When we come back, Ron McLean after the break on the Jeff Merrick show, Matt Marchese hosting. We'll talk to you in a few. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back. Hour two of the Jeff Merrick Show. Matt Marchese filling in for Jeff, who is, I want to say he's on assignment, but he's just driving back. So that's not really an assignment. He had to come back at some point. I mean, he wasn't going to stay in Owen Sound forever. Jeff will be back on Monday. My jokes will not continue on Monday, so you're lucky. Uh, Pleased to be joined on the line by the legend himself, Ron McLean from Hockey Night in Canada as we approach Hockey Day in Canada. And Ron, I have to put this out there because as a kid growing up and watching you on Hockey Night in Canada, my dad always used to tell me, you know, I was at a party with Ron McLean once, your mother and I, and I'm like, okay, great. Um, They were at a party with you with uh, the late Doug Sellers, who my dad played ball hockey with. And he said, Doug was a fantastic player. And he said, yeah, Ron was at one of the parties. I'm like, okay, great, dad. That's your claim to fame. Congratulations. Was that a Tobacco, Matt? I believe so. Yes. Yeah, he uh, Doug was an amazing uh, hockey player. He was a producer who died playing hockey at the age of fifty down in Los Angeles, California. Uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, uh, the uh, producer, he had a skate, and uh, Doug was out uh, twice a week and in great shape. But you know, just one of those things. And uh, he was—I'll always remember Matt. Doug produced the nineteen ninety-two Olympics in Alberville, the shift that I worked. And he was the kind of producer that would uh, show up 15 minutes to air and open up the itinerary of events that day and say, okay, the biggest event is this one. We'll start there and just proceed. And he was very, very open and easy with uh, the way he produced. Uh, very thoughtful, extremely uh, uh, detailed, but he was probably the, the best at sort of freewheeling I ever worked for. Yeah, I, I've heard a lot of wonderful things. I believe he worked for Fox at one point when he was in la as well right so yeah no uh, and uh, and uh, my dad told me a wonderful man and uh like i said his my dad's claim to fame was going to a party at doug seller's place with you so i said good you you. i'm sorry to break it to your dad but there's about 20 million canadians (laughs) that's what i said (laughs) i said you're not the only one um (laughs) so you're you're an owen sound for hockey day in canada i know this is a big one for you and, and you've been doing this for years um 
all can all seven Canadian teams in action, which we know um, three all Canadian matchups. What what's your favorite part about Hockey Day in Canada? Because I know there's a bunch of different things, and you get to learn about the the city that you're in. But is there one thing that kind of stands out to you over the years? No, that that's it. The learning. Uh, I think what keeps our job fresh. It's like you're consistently uh, preparing for something new. You're trying to find a way to say big day or big game uh, in a fresh approach. So when you come to Own Sound, and you know we've been trying to do this for three years, mm-hmm. which is part of the fun that we've all been having up here. But immediately upon arrival, I watched the attack game Tuesday night, and I was in a suite with Denise Reed, who's a power skating instructor, and her husband, Brian. Uh, they were the billet family for Cody Cece when he played here, and Lots of great stories and watch Colby Barlow, their 17-year-old captain of the attack, who's, uh, you know, they got him eighth overall. Dale DeGray drafted him, uh, and he's a steal. He's uh, got goals in eight straight. He's a 30-goal scorer two times over, and he scored 30 as a 16-year-old. So he'll be off to Langley for the top prospects. And then I was with the MacArthur family up there. They're going to referee the alumni game tonight. That's a big name up here. MacArthur's, uh, they have a tire, kind of their... Biggest industry was uh, MacArthur Tire, uh, but they sponsor everything. They, it's the J.D. MacArthur Rink in the Harry Lumley Arena. It's also the rec center is named after the MacArthur's. Tonight when we play, Wilbur will referee and his two sons, Greg and Kevin, will be the linesmen. And you know how it goes. Like I mean, you're sitting in Red Deer listening to me say all that, and you're thinking, what the hell is he talking about? But but I love it. And, you you know, everyone here, like Mike Feuda was in tears last night when he spoke at the banquet. Uh, Lanny McDonald was in tears when he spoke because we touched on two things. We touched on Boreas Salming and that amazing thing that happened Hall of Fame weekend. And then he talked about Herb Carnegie making the phone call to Herb's daughter, Bernice, to say that Herb was going into the Hockey Hall of Fame. And it's just a real guard-down, hockey-forward event that celebrates uh, everything about the game not only the elite but the the backbone the grassroots yeah and and in owen like owen sound when i think of owen sound i think of hockey and it's a it's a great place i mean i've been there it was all bad experiences playing triple a hockey because we used to get our butts (laughs) handed to us by the gray bruce highlanders all the time but when i think about that i i do think about hockey i think of playing against uh lane mcdermott whose brother curtis plays in the nhl and father paul was was also a player in the NHL, so th- it's a, it's one of those that has its roots in hockey as well, and I think that's important because when we when we go through hockey, we get kind of caught up in all the big stories, and we we forget about you know where things all started, and that's what I appreciate about Hockey Day is that it does bring us back to that, and we kind of we kind of get to sit back and look at our own hockey history and say oh yeah this is this is where it all started and and now we're here right now and i feel like that's a big part of hockey day in canada as well well let me just touch on the mcdermott's for a moment paul was uh, drafted uh, third round by the hartford whalers and he had his first nhl goal assisted on by dave keon how's that that's, so, not, that's pretty good <laughs> yeah he starts with that history and as you mentioned his boys lane and curtis brought the stanley cup colorado won it his team so he brought it home to shallow lake and sauble beach last summer sauble beach is on lake huron it's about 45 minutes to the west of owen sound and they have peter and paul have a huge trailer park which is essentially like a, a muskoka cottage campground uh, you have to be really uh, well behaved to be uh, able to plant your trailer for the summer on their property and everybody comes back year after year it's an incredibly tight community and those two lane and peter are the principal owners of the own sound attack they've given back to the ohl they've given back to the attack um, and that's exactly uh, what makes them so special is uh, you know from dave keon uh, to never forgetting their roots 
Yeah, for sure. Um, Ron McLean, our guest here, Hockey Night in Canada and tomorrow, Hockey Day in Canada, all seven teams in action starting at three o'clock with the lightning and flames and capping things off Oilers and Canucks at 10 o'clock. And um, I wanted to kind of focus on the Canadian teams right now with you, Ron, because you, you, there's, there's a couple of really good ones right now. And, and I, I feel like you can make the case that Edmonton should be in the conversation. But when you look at the Canadian teams, which of those do you believe has the, the best chance right now to, to bring Stanley cup back home? Because I mean, we have this conversation every single year, it feels like, and we have for, you know, 30 years now or almost 30 years. Uh, is there a team that kind of stands out to you right now that you look at and go, you know what? I, I really do think that they have a shot here. Well, I know folks look at Edmonton and say, you know, I don't trust the goaltending and I'm not sure about the defense. And they probably say that about the Leafs as well, two great teams. But I, I do kind of lean to this uh, old adage, number one, for sure, uh, Matt, goaltending wins. That's the number one thing in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And you've got to have it. And uh, But having said that, I think Chicago won with good goaltending, not spectacular goaltending. Corey Crawford is a really good goalie. And uh, Antti Niemi, who won their first cup. Same with Detroit, with Chris Osgood, uh, not a superstar goaltender just a really good goaltender and so you can win with good goaltending and I think Campbell uh, or Skinner are capable of that Uh, I mean I just always come back to the second adage too is when two teams give 100% ultimately talent prevails that's what got Sheldon Keefe in such trouble when he mentioned the elite players in the game against Arizona at the start of the year but McDavid and Dreisaitl uh, when you watch night after night it's just it has to be a matter of time that that clicks and the there's enough support around them, you know, whether it's Evander Kane or Ryan Nugent Hopkins or Zach Hyman. Uh, I think they're getting deeper and better. And I think Darnell, you know, there's a lot of pressure on him uh, and CC, you know, to these guys to, to somehow defend in the key situations. Colorado went through that. They had, uh, they finally added McCarr. So that was the missing piece. They had the superstars up front with the, the Ranton and McKinnon Landeskog line, much like Edmonton, but they needed to be able to defend and you can do it different ways. Chicago did it with Duncan Keith and Colorado with uh, McCarr. Those weren't the big prototypical Pronger, uh, Chara, Colton Pareko or Petrangelo shutdown guys. So everything's, you know, it can go a number of different ways that you, you know, skin the cat. But I love Edmonton. I really, I, th- I just watch them and I think, yeah, they, they, I wouldn't want to play them. And then, you know, the problem for Toronto is obviously, you know, they, they would have to face Boston or Tampa uh, in the, or even maybe Florida. I don't think it could go that way, but uh, they're going to have to face these uh Tampa would be treacherous in that first round, yeah. right? Because they, they may not be able to, after these years and all the hockey they've played, to go four deep again, but they could, and they certainly would be a super hard out in the opening round. So, And, and Boston's clearly found their groove. So th- those are the two, for me, the best teams. And then, you know, I've seen Daryl Sutter pull it with the Calgary Flames in 2004 and win two cups with L.A., those were teams built a different way. Again, they were just uh, so hard to play against that they wore you out. And I think Winnipeg and Calgary are capable of that. So they could get on a magic run. Um, uh, you mentioned Tampa Bay there. And I wanted to, before I get on the Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl thing, I did want to touch on, on Tampa Bay and specifically Steven Stamkos scores goal number 500 the other day. And then he just proceeds to add uh, a couple more to that total. And I had this conversation with, with Elliot yesterday you know, when, when I look back on Steven Stamkos' career, it does strike me as one of perseverance. And we don't necessarily say that a lot about superstar players because I think he's in that category. Like, he's a Hall of Famer. But with Steven Stamkos, he, we had a conversation with him earlier this season when he notched uh, point number 1,000. And I, the way I'll remember him is, you know, perseverance, but also a humble superstar. And 
And I feel like that's a very common thing in the NHL, but Steven Stamkos also strikes me as a, a very thoughtful person too. talked about, you know, growing up and playing multiple sports as, as a kid and, and making sure that his kid will do the same thing. I feel like we are losing that a little bit in today's game as well. Oh, well, uh, you know, Patrice Bergeron is the same, you know, he had a massive concussion situation and he rallied and he's got his thousandth point this year and he's a super two way, you know, constant Selkie trophy winner. And John Tavares has had some really severe injuries, broke his leg, you know, at the Olympics. And obviously he was banged up in the Montreal series and reminds me of that great two way, very productive player. And, and I, I'm here in Owen Sound. So I'll just give you as an example. Colby Barlow is the captain. I mentioned he's very prolific, uh, uh, just a dynamite shot and uh, everything, skates like uh, the wind. But his uh, billet mate is Gavin Bryant. And Gavin studies, uh, he specially studies uh, Tavares and Camp on the Leafs, but his favorite player is Ryan O'Reilly. And he loves to watch Jonathan Taves, who he told me is having a real resurgence this year, and Patrice Bergeron. So he is that guy. And, and they, he has that same character. You know, you watched the Edmonton game last night, and you saw those, uh, I would call it the code, when uh, obviously Maroon dumped McDavid and Clem Costin stepped in later at the start of the second period, and you saw the joy on the Oilers, uh, their reaction. Even at the game's end, McDavid made it a point to go to him again and thank him for what it takes to win. So it's still there. All all the the great virtues I think are uh, are existent in the game today, and I, I see it on the attack. Just watching this local junior team has been a a joy to be reminded of that. And if you don't, it's, you know, like uh, Walt Matinchuk, the general, said, the farther you get from the guns, the less you understand about military. Uh, sometimes we just need to get back out into the junior ranks to to see that from top to bottom. Like the trainer here, Matt, is Andy Brown, who was the trainer mm-hmm. for our World Junior Championship yep. team. And uh, he also, in the early part of the year, went over to Poland onto the Ukrainian border and for a couple of weeks or more was uh, transporting Ukrainian refugees to safe harbor. I mean, that's that's how it goes in uh, organizations like the Own Sound Attack. So I think I think it still exists. But you're, you're so right about Samkos, and I'll tell you one more. I'm rambling here, but um, Herb Carnegie played his last year of hockey here, uh, and obviously we have a, a nice salute from Anthony Stewart to the great legacy of black players who've starred here, whether it's uh, Joel Ward or Wayne Simmons. Um, there's just a Jamal Smith played here, uh, Kevin Weeks. It's a fantastic uh, relationship they have with uh, this being the last, the northern stop on the Underground Railroad. And Stephen, when he was a boy, was playing with P.K. Subban. They were teammates in minor hockey at a tournament in KW. And one of the fans, uh, I think it was a team from the U.S., one of the fans was hurling uh, you know, derogatory uh, slurs at uh, P.K., and Christopher, the dad of uh, Stephen Stamkos, was the one who stepped in immediately and Carl's always been hesitant to to mention that story because he doesn't want to drag uh, Christopher into conversations or even possibly blowback, believe it or not. Uh, so, but they but they are exactly as you described the the character that you would hope all of us in the game represent. For sure. Um, the, on the Connor McDavid conversation, and you know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's an Oilers fan, and you know, when I, when I looked at the Oilers and I say. I don't think anybody thought that they were going to get to the Western Conference Final last year because the same questions still were there. Is their defense good enough? Is their goaltending good enough? But Connor and Leon were incredible. And Leon was playing on one leg and was incredible. I I look at that team and I agree with you. Like, it's only a matter of time when you have two superstars like that and you have other players going. Like, you mentioned Zach Hyman has been really good this season. And Ryan Nugent Hopkins has been incredible. He's had an offensive resurgence. 
I, I just I look at that team and and the way that McDavid is playing right now. Like there's not a player in the world, like even Drysidle, there's not a player in the world that is close to Connor McDavid. It feels like right now. No, it just and just so long as they don't have a one of those goals that sucks the wind out of the sails of yeah. the entire team. You know that that will be the big thing is that you know Connor does his end to end goal that's a highlight for the ages, and then somebody dumps it in and it's a goal the other way. That can't happen. They they need to have some protection. Grant Fuhrer afforded the Oilers that. Like Grant would give up the first goal just about every game, and he would give up three, and uh, but he'd always walk into the second intermission and say, "You guys score one here in the third, we're tied. You score one, we win." And he'd do that. And Patrick Owa was the same way. He he was guilty of some bad goals and some wonky starts. But when it came down to uh, brass tacks, he was just so impressive in the clutch. Uh, another Edmonton Oiler, um, I don't want to say he made headlines, but since his return, I mean, Evander Kane plays a big part on that Oilers team. But off the ice, he had said something that kind of resonated with me. And, and he was talking about needing to promote personalities in the game he talked about the stars and the stars of the game generally speaking are some of the quieter players in the game and and that's kind of been the mo of hockey for a long time it's it's don't be a distraction and that's been kind of the case for a while don't rock the apple cart don't be the guy that kind of sets yourself apart do you think that the nhl needs to promote the personalities a little bit more because i mean in canada it's it's easy for us to say you know we know who the stars are and and we're fine with them not being uh, big personalities because that's what we've kind of gotten used to. But when we're promoting the game in the U.S., it does feel like we need a little bit more of that. Like, it's not necessarily the stars, but we need to do a better job of promoting personalities because, you know, get get people involved in the game, and that's kind of what does it. Yeah, you can't argue that, Matt. I mean, the dress code's the simplest solution. Just allow them to sort of show their uh, sense of style. For the broadcast on Saturday... This is unbelievable. Uh, Cam Lazat played for the Peterborough Peets and Erie Otters, so he was he missed McDavid, but he was a teammate of Dylan Strom and Alex DeBrinket, and they wear his clothing. Cam, after he retired from hockey, uh, has become a fashion designer, and he sews all his own garments. If you're wearing a his company is called Coin Atelier, and the coin is representative of Sudbury. He grew up in Falconbridge, which is Sudbury, Ontario. They have the great big nickel, of course, so he he's got a play on coin in his company's name. But he has sewn me a beautiful jacket to wear on the broadcast. It's a sort of an homage to the Platers, the original Owen mm-hmm. Sound Attack, when they arrived in 89. And it's also a, a bit of a, a nod to Billy Bishop, the World War One fighter pilot. So it's in the design of a, an airman's bomber jacket. And it's just beautiful. And, and the work that goes into it, and, uh, you know, it's style. And uh, Matthews and Marner and lots of the Leafs, Nylander, Willie Stiles, you know, they're, they're doing that, and I agree with you there. The, the one caveat always is, uh, whatever you do can't be disrespectful of the enemy. The, you know, the sure. warrior respects the battle, um, and and the way you respect the battle sometimes is is not to do the uh, overt silly in front of their bench. And uh, th- those kinds of things I don't think will go away. And I think there's a little bit of that uh, demure, polite, sorry Canadian that I I think is part of us uh, that. I don't want us to lose, but but I agree with you. Nah, I wouldn't do it in the name of selling seats or tickets or getting uh, you know likes on social media, but I would do it in the name of advancement. We, you know, we we totally need to uh, 
respect a, a person's uh, individual experience and right. I don't say unapologetically yourself because sometimes you do need to say sorry. Yeah. But I think we we need to lean as a society more towards uh, giving some license within the, the framework of a team. Uh, just a couple more things before we let you go. And you've been very generous with your time. Uh, th- I brought this up yesterday on the show. Uh, Connor McDavid said that he would love to see a 10-minute three-on-three overtime and get rid of the shootout. Yes. Now, now I'm fine with ties. I have no issue with that if I get to watch 10 minutes of three-on-three because, frankly, I think that more games are going to end than not with a 10-minute three-on-three overtime. And we're talking about advancing the game in excitement. To me, other than the playoffs, there is no other exciting, more exciting thing than three-on-three overtime in the regular season for my money. No, and, and the World Juniors proved that out as well. That, yeah. Uh, that gold medal game going to three on three. I just remember to tell you how exciting it is, is that you wonder like, who's the coach going to select? Normally you kind of put a little thought into who the starting lineup is, but really you could care less. But when they started the three on three overtime in the Czechia Canada game, and I'm thinking, wow, I don't know if I'd come out with Shane Wright, who's your more dependable face-off guy, or if I would come out with uh, Connor Bedard's line. And, Coach made the decision, Dennis Williams, to go with the Bedard line, and they got her done. I mean, they didn't get it done on that shift, but they didn't lose it on that shift. You can see Sheldon Keith has had to juggle with that all, or struggle might be a better word. You know, do I start Kampf or do I start uh, my big guns? And sometimes it's better to just try and gain possession, try and settle in a little bit. But it's, I agree with you, electric and who would argue with McDavid anyway? Yeah, well, I think I think having a star make that point, I think, makes a big difference than you know, a third liner. I mean, and, and right. the third liner is probably not playing in overtime anyway, and it's going to be <laughs> McDavid. So I, I, I get remember it. we were doing, uh, when, when they first uh, cracked down on obstruction in 2006, and we went from 12,000 minor penalties one season to 18,000 minor penalties, and it was just like power play, power play, power play. I hated it. And uh, so I'm interviewing Colin Campbell, director of officiating and everything else, or senior VP of hockey operations, I should say. And, and he put up a board of all the people who liked the crackdown, you know, and they were like 400 hall of famers on that list. He says, who are you going to believe Ron, the 400 <laughs> hall of famers or Ron junior B referee. <laughs> oh, Hard to argue that one. Um, uh, one. One final thing here. Uh, so listen, we've, we've seen it a lot in baseball where there are bad teams and they're inherently bad every single year. And for whatever reason, they tank and it's, it's a disaster. Um, we're seeing that a lot this season. And last night was a prime example, bad teams beating other bad teams. Like Columbus loses at home to Anaheim, Chicago beats Philadelphia in Philadelphia. It's kind of like you take it. I don't want it. And now like this is only going to get worse. Like they're going to trade away good players and it's going to be a tough watch on a lot of nights for these fans. Where do you kind of stand on the whole tanking thing? Because, you know, I mentioned it in my open today. You're not guaranteed to get the first overall pick. We know that. And only four of the last 10 teams that have finished in last place have actually retained the first overall pick in any other year. I would say, well, it's probably not a good idea, but where do you stand on it for Connor Bedard? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan of the cap. So I, I, and it's been the great recipe to make sure that every city feels it's got a shot. You know, the cap was the equalizer. So uh, from a balance projective perspective, I should say, uh, I understand the cap thinking, but I would rather a system that's looser where you can start keep your star players or you can have a luxury tax system. I feel like you, you, you like lots of teams from smaller markets won 
before the cap. So I, I've always never bought that, but that was what it was done for. And it's the same with tanking. It's kind of a way to keep people's interest, believe it or not. You know, you're, you're going to, and, and I just don't get that. You know, uh, I know Michelle Goulet helped me with my second book, which was called Hockey Towns, obviously a companion to our Rogers Hometown series. And, and he spoke about seeing the Quebec Nordiques trade away their good players in order to tank and have a shot at Matt Sundin or Owen Nolan. Those were the years when they loaded up, and it worked. They, you know, they ended up winning a Stanley Cup in 1995. There was no lottery to the extent that it is now. Um, but look, uh, the people, I mean, I can't help but think, come on, Montreal, smarten up lose this game yeah. I'm, I'm almost cheering for them to drop because i want bedard in canada right so it, that's that's in the name of the fan and i guess again it's hard to to get too excited about it but i you know and, and hockey is matt as you know it's a game you 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 can take away all the talent in the world but if that other goalie has a bad night or if somebody gets the hot hand and is suddenly seeing the ice like connor or gretzky you're going to win you know those are the perils of trying to fix hockey well, you talk about Connor. Uh, you talk about the cap being the great equalizer. Connor Bedard may be the great equalizer as well for a lot of teams. Listen, Ron, uh, you've been generous with your time. I greatly appreciate it, and uh, enjoy tomorrow. I-, I will be watching. I know uh, millions of Canadians will be as well. So enjoy it and stay warm. Yeah, my- I will. Much appreciated, Matt. Thanks as always. There he goes. Ron McLean from Hockey Night in Canada, head of Hockey Day in Canada. I'd like to apologize because Hockey Day in Canada does not start at 3 o'clock. It actually starts at 11 a.m. with the PWHPA's uh, showcase matchup between Team Scotiabank and Team Adidas. That is on Sportsnet at 11 a.m. Eastern. Then that is followed by Lightning and Flames at 3 p.m. Rick Ball, Greg Millen, and Ryan Leslie on that call. And then we will have two games at uh, 7 Eastern. Eastern Leafs at Canadians, Cuthbert Simpson Bukaskis on that one, uh, Jets at Senators, Bartlett Galley and McKenzie on that broadcast, 7 Eastern, and at 10 Eastern, Oilers at Canucks, Singh, DeBrusque, and Oak on that one. Tomorrow is going to be a lot of fun. And maybe the headliner, because it's because of the meaning and the, the history between the two teams, is Montreal and Toronto uh, in Montreal. And like uh, our guest Luke Fox in the previous hour said, that's going to be a lot of fun. It's always a good time, Montreal, uh, on a Saturday night when they play the Toronto Maple Leafs. Speaking of those Montreal Canadiens, uh, they got whooped last night. There's no other way to describe that performance at home other than um, they got run out of the building. Mike Matheson was fined, uh, uh, I think it was $5,000 for his hit on Eric Stahl. Didn't love it. Wasn't great. And uh, Eric Engels is going to join us from Sports. And we're going to talk about Montreal going forward here and just... How do you balance losing and losing too much and winning too much when you're trying to develop young players? And in this case, uh, one of those players that won't be developing the rest of the season, he will be rehabbing, is Uri Slavkovsky, who's announced that he will be out three months, effectively ending his season. So Eric Engels, when we come back, Matt Marchesian for Jeff Merrick on the Jeff Merrick Show. We'll talk to you in a few minutes. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back. Final segment of the week. Matt Marcasian for Jeff Merrick. Uh, random player of the day before we end this show. Uh, fun one. Uh, has a nice little place in hockey history. And uh, we'll we'll get to that after Eric Engels, who we're trying to reach right now. Uh, Montreal Canadiens, that wasn't fun last night. That was that was not pretty. 
uh, a home loss and a big one to uh, a struggling Panthers team who, by the way, Montreal has their pick. So I, I'm kind of of two minds on beating the, the Florida Panthers last night. But, yeah, it wasn't pretty for the Montreal Canadiens. Eric Angles from Sportsnet joining me on the line right now. And, and Eric, um, I mean, I, I get it. I, I know you don't want to win too many games if you're the Montreal Canadiens, but last night was not one of those that you can put on the mantle, that's for sure. Uh, no, <laughs> you said it. <laughs> like... Uh... The Canadians, there haven't been too many games this season where you'd point to the results and say, okay, this is one that they actually want to have. Um, because, you know, they're going to lose a little bit more than they're going to win from here to the end of the season. And that's not guaranteed for Florida, which has already done a lot more losing than what was ex- expected at the beginning of the year. And so to uh, get a win last night and, like, maybe plunder them a little further into doubt and that's, uh, you know, it didn't end up happening. You're looking at draft lottery odds for both teams. If they both end up in the bottom 10, your, your, your odds are that much better that you'll get two good players within that realm. And, but at the same time, you know, it's a competition. Every time you step on the ice, you're trying to win a hockey game, no matter what stage you're in, uh, in your development and your build as a hockey team in the NHL. And, you know, the Canadians played with a lot of emotion last night. So did Florida. And we'll see what happens in the long term here. Like I, Sergei Bobrovsky going down last night is not good for Florida, especially with Spencer Knight already on the sidelines. Alex Lyon was fantastic in the game last night. Will he be able to keep that up and hold the fort while they desperately need points? They, they, you know, Florida's margin for error has somewhat been eliminated by the way they started the season. So we'll see what happens moving forward here. Yeah, their margin for error is basically zero because they don't have many tradable assets either. Uh, they basically have no picks, including the one that they traded to Montreal for Ben Chirot last year. Um, Ken Hughes earlier this week, he talked about trying to find the balance between uh, not losing too much and not winning too much, which to me, when you're trying to develop young players is is a really hard thing to do, especially for Martin San Louis, who really hasn't been on the job all that long. Like what kind of a what kind of a, a difficult job is it for Martin San Louis the rest of the year? Because, you know, you you don't want to lose too much because that that's not good for the morale and it's not good for young players, but you also don't want to win too much because hey, you kind of want Connor Bedard on your team. Yeah, well, listen, the, the the second part there about Connor Bedard is not Martin St. Louis' objective, right? Like, he's got to go into every game trying to win um, and and when in a position to win, um, certainly put the hammer down and try to do it. Uh, and that's what he explained yesterday. Like, their objective above everything is developing their team individually uh, and also as a team, and also in terms of culture, right? Like, if you're going to go into games trying to lose them, you're not developing a healthy culture. And I think this is kind of an age-old argument. You look through the teams that have deliberately lost games. Um, it hasn't gone particularly well. It's been a, it's been a much longer thing than a three- to five-year build for a team. I look at Buffalo. I look at Edmonton. Um you know, Arizona, I look at Arizona as honestly like the worst place that Connor Bedard could end up. It, it, do they have the pieces that they'd actually be able to take advantage of it while he's on entry level? And then all of a sudden he's on a contract that he earns so much money that it becomes difficult to build an actual team that can win. It's If he ends up in a place like Buffalo where they've been building for years or a place like Montreal where they've started to build and have some good young pieces, then, you know, you have a chance. So I'm I'm not a big proponent of the tanking model. Um, But, yeah, it does come down to culture more than anything, right? Like you're 
you're not building a healthy culture and, and doing good things for your young players if you're going into games deliberately trying to lose them. So I think the way Marty St. Louis put it yesterday was we're going to go into every game with development as a, as a, as the primary objective where we're going to play players, you know, maybe above where they are currently so that they can gain those experiences. And if we get into the third period and we have a chance to win the game, then we're going to go for it. And maybe somebody will sit for a little bit longer than usual. Like that's, I think a, a good approach and it's worked out so far this season as far as far as the Canadians moving forward on that plan is concerned and see where it goes from here to the end with all the injuries. I think a lot more young players are going to get some, some good opportunities moving forward. Unfortunately, one of them won't be your eyes Slavkovsky now that he's out from here to the end of the season, pretty much that knee injury. So with Slavkovsky, now that we, like you said, is this is season effectively is, is over how how will you look back on his rookie year? Because there was a lot of chatter about would it have been better to send him to the World Juniors? Would it have been better to send him to Laval where he could play some meaningful minutes and really kind of get that confidence up? And now it's kind of, I don't want to call it a lost year because he gained NHL experience and I I don't think that's ever a bad thing. But what are your main takeaways from his rookie year and and I guess what are the what are the Canadians' thoughts on their season? Do you think there's there's kind of a little bit of remorse about how they treated his rookie year and, and his development here? I don't think they feel that. Will they feel that three, four years from now? If for whatever reason Slavkovsky doesn't develop into the player we all think that he can be, you know, I speak to a lot of scouts and different executives that watch Slavkovsky and have watched him throughout the season, and you know, there's plenty of them that have suggested that maybe you know some time in the AHL would would have been good for him at one point or another but none of them are of the mind that he won't turn into a top six forward here and you know as you look back at that draft a year ago there was no guarantee as the number one pick like let's let's put the cards on the table as far as what the 2022 draft was a lot of good players none of them generational uh, and we'll find out if the best one was chosen first overall or ends up being uh, a kid like the Canadians pick 62nd overall with Lane Hudson. Uh, like it's, it's really, it was just one of those years pandemic affected development for a number of the kids there in key years leading up to the draft and left a lot of doubt in the air, but the Canadians, you know, it was the most important decision that they could have made uh, as a new regime coming in and taking over and the people that they hired and, and they, you know, really were quite deliberate with this decision so I have to think that no matter how feel, how I would feel about what the best thing is for Slavkovsky's development, um, you know, they have the biggest interest in, in out of anybody to make it work. So I don't think optics got in the way of, okay, we're starting him in the NHL, and if, if for whatever reason he's not playing well enough, it's going to look bad on us if, he, if we send him to the NHL. I don't really think that was a factor at all here. I think the Canadians – View, viewed his development as he's a long-term project at the size that he is and who he is um, and that they felt he had the character to be able to understand that this season for him was not going to be about production. It was going to be about really training his ability to play not only North American hockey, but play it at the highest level and learn how to adapt to the speed of the game at the NHL level. And so long as his uh, confidence remained kind of unbristled, they they wouldn't be too concerned with points or this or that. They just wanted to develop him playing on North American ice and in the NHL and at that speed. So we'll find out in two, three years or three, four years, if what they did this year was the best thing for him, because 
the first step is usually you know the most important one and and you're not going to get steps two and three flowing smoothly if that first one doesn't go well and so I'm curious as anybody to find out how it turns out. I would have lobbied at certain points this season that, you know, it would be good for him to get the puck on his stick and a lot more and and get that feel and play high minutes in the American Hockey League for for a section of games and then bring him back. I think the Canadians were potentially angling towards that after building up certain habits in his game at the NHL level before setting him down there. But now we won't know because he's injured. Eric Engels from Sportsnet joining Matt Marchese here on the Jeff Merrick show. And, and, you know, we talked to you, you mentioned having some younger players coming up and getting some opportunities. And, and to me, that will start when they start moving some veteran players out, you know, like they, they've got some guys that are, are pending unrestricted free agents, uh, you know, Jonathan Drouin, who's not going to be back until after the all-star break. Uh, Sean Monaghan, I'm not quite sure when he's supposed to be back, but you know, we've seen talk about maybe uh, him in Colorado, how deep do you think this thing goes? Like, I know that I know that tanking is not something that a lot of teams will openly admit, but you can, you know, position yourself where you just have younger players and get them experience and put yourself in a better position. Do you kind of see this going that way with the Canadians? And, and another guy that I wanted to throw into that mix, because I think that he's the perfect type of playoff player. The issue is the contract, and that's Josh Anderson. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I'm kind of going to reframe why it's being asked here because, you know, if you're looking at it purely to remove assets, to weaken the product on the ice and give more opportunity to young players, the Canadians don't really need to do it. Like, they've been doing it since the beginning of the season. They started with four rookie defensemen. Justin Barron is now up. Unfortunately, Caden Gooley is hurt. Um, you know, there's there's... Jesse Alonen, who's playing right now front, Raphael Harvey-Pinard. So, yeah, it's not, you know, I don't think they need to move necessarily bodies out to keep giving opportunities to young players. What they're really looking to do is maximize asset value for certain players. And so it leads to kind of the same thing you're asking, Matt, because I think Sean Monaghan is a prime candidate to be moved uh, away from Montreal, though, you know, I think a lot of Canadian fans look at the value he provided to the Canadians while he was playing and what it looked like when he was out of the lineup, and they're they're kind of clamoring for him to get signed in Montreal, which is uh, an opportunity you get if he gets the free agency. I know it's rare for a free agent to come back that's been traded, but if the value is there for him to be traded and you can redeem a future asset that helps your build long-term and build that sustainable winning kind of team that Kent Hughes is looking to build that you trade the player and and you hope that if for whatever reason the impression was strong enough in Montreal he considers coming back and and that's something that helps stabilize you a year from now but yeah I mean if they're going to get for instance a 2024 first round pick for Sean Monahan they're going to trade the player he should be back really soon Um, I don't know if it'll be this weekend but I got to think that next week is a really strong possibility for him uh, Josh Anderson is going to be an appealing player to many teams as far as a playoff potential is concerned and what he can bring and what that dynamic is. Um, he's a unique type of player in terms of his ability to play at full speed and with a certain power and physicality that not a lot of players play with. But, you know, the contract is long and it's a difficult one to swallow, you know, even this season or, or seasons moving forward without the cap moving very much and all these teams up against it and, or in long-term IR spending. I mean, it's, it's kind of a crazy situation. There's a reason we haven't seen any trades really in the NHL and 
the money is extremely tight. Joel Edmondson is another guy you're going to look at who's got one year left on his deal after this one that I think the value will be there for any team looking for a playoff-type performer and a great leader and a guy who can really stabilize your team defensively. You know, uh, I, I think as we get between now and the deadline, you're only going to hear his name more. Um, there's even a couple of teams in Canada that I think would really benefit from his presence on their blue line. So we'll see where that goes. And then, you know, you have the other guys. You have uh, Jonathan Duran who's injured, so we're not sure what's going to happen there on an expiring contract. For sure, anybody who's on an expiring contract, the Canadians have the ability to retain salary, which is going to be a help moving them out. Evgeny Dadanov is playing much better hockey of late. Production is rising a little bit, but I think you know all the scouts who are at Montreal games are seeing what he can potentially bring as a depth option at you know half his salary. There, there's possibilities in the air. I just don't think, Matt, that it's going to be to open up opportunity or space for the younger players because the, the space is already there for them. Um, one more thing before we let you go here, and, and it's a big one, um, a Cole Caulfield extension. And uh, I'm. It, it seems like both parties are willing to to have those talks now as they should be because Caulfield has been great since joining the, the Canadians. And I'm, I'm curious to see what that number looks like because I, I find it really hard to believe that he's going to get paid more than Nick Suzuki. Uh, partially Nick Suzuki is the captain, partially because he's a center. Um but I see the Matt Boldy contract in Minnesota and I say to myself, well, Cole Caulfield should get paid more than Matt Boldy did. He's, he's proven it more at the NHL level. You pay for goals in the NHL. So I guess what, what I, I kind of come back to is Cole Caulfield feels like if he's going to sign an extension, it's probably going to be at somewhere around like 7.5 million per. And some people may be shaking their heads at that, but goal scoring is a premium in this game. And, and Cole Caulfield does that really well. Yeah, I don't see how anybody would be shaking their head at that. And to be fair, I don't see Matt Boldy as a comparable, nor do I see Nick Suzuki as one. Um, you know, naturally, if you're the Canadians and you're approaching this thing and you're looking on the long-term spectrum and saying, okay, we'd like to get Cole down on an eight-year deal, the incentive to do that is if you get him on a number that's close to what Suzuki makes, if not less, which would, I mean, if you're Cole Caulfield and you've scored, you're on pace to score over four, 45 goals this season and have scored, uh, you know, more than 50 since Martin St. Louis has been the coach of this team. Uh, I think you're selling yourself short signing an eight year deal at that type of number right now. So you talk about 7.5. I look at it as like, yeah, you know, Cole, if he signs for 7.5 over three years as an, as an annual average salary, um, isn't selling himself short. He's opening the opportunity for him to sign a much bigger deal down the line. He'd be a year away from unrestricted free agency as somebody who started in the league and immediately burned his uh, first year of his entry-level contract and, and will be trending towards free agency sooner than some other players would have been. Um, you know, We talk about comparables. I look at what Jason Robertson was like before he signed with Dallas. He had a 41-goal season. Um, and he ended up with four years at, I think it was 7.5, somewhere in that neighborhood as an AAV. So that's more the way I look at it. Like if the Canadians can get this player done for eight years at call it $8 million or in between eight and $9 million, that will be a, a home run contract for the Canadians. Like this, this kid is not a flash in the pan goal scorer. Like some of the guys we're seeing in, the, in, in an NHL this year where goal scoring is up. Uh, this, this is a kid who broke, who shattered Austin Matthews's 
goal record in, in the United States Development Program and has been scoring goals his entire life. Like that's his pedigree. It's not like uh, it's not like William Carlson who who came out of nowhere and all of a sudden had a huge season. Uh, like it's this this kid. That's what this kid does. And like you said and said very well. That is the premium in the NHL. It's the hardest thing to do, and there's a reason teams pay for it because it's very hard to find. And so that middle ground where you end up on that kind of shorter-term deal is something that I think Cole could live with because he'll have enough money in his bank account that he won't be complaining about selling himself short. Um, He'll also give the Canadians an opportunity at a number like that to continue building uh, over those three years, call it. Uh, And... And uh, everybody can potentially be happy about it. Would the Canadians love to get him done like Nick Suzuki at the same number or a little bit less? Of course, that would be the, the biggest incentive in locking him up long term. As far as the intentions are concerned on both sides here, Cole wants to be here in Montreal. He wants to be playing with Nick Suzuki. And, and the Canadians want to keep him here for as long as possible. But on this type of contract negotiation and this type of circumstance, I, I think it's I think it's much more likely he ends up on a bridge contract than a long-term one. So we'll see how that shakes out, and we'll see what Caulfield's about, and we'll see what the Canadians are about with him when, once the process is finished, which I, I'm skeptical will happen before the season ends. Yeah, and again, not in, not in a huge rush right now. Uh, they, to me, the Habs are one of the most fascinating teams ahead of the deadline because I am curious to see uh, who they are able to move out, and I, I still think you know the Josh Anderson thing is super interesting. I know there's a lot of money left on that deal in term, but uh, one of those players that can make a difference for you in the playoffs. Uh, listen, Eric, thanks so much for for taking some time for me today. Really appreciate it, and enjoy Leafs Habs tomorrow night in Montreal. That should be a ton of fun. Always do, and uh, always pleasure being with you, buddy. There he goes, Eric Engels from Sportsnet, covering off the Montreal Canadiens. We're gonna squeeze this one in here. It's time for our random player of the day. And for it, we look no further than Scarborough, Ontario's own Ron Tugnut, former goaltender who played for a bunch of teams. This one's submitted by Christopher J. 538 games. And when we think of Ron Tugnut, we look back on his career as one, you know, Kelly Rudy always talks about 500 games played as a goalie, as like the thousand game mark for a player. And, and how it should be celebrated that way. And, and I, do, I do tend to agree with that. And Ron Tugnut falls under that category, played for the, the Quebec Nordiques and, and the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Columbus Blue Jackets, among, among other teams. And, and when we look back at the history of hockey, Ron Tugnut has quite the place in it. He holds the regular season record for most saves in a regular season game with 70 in 1991, and the record previously was 65, but Ron Tugnut's game against the Bruins actually went into overtime, so he was afforded with an extra five minutes to make more saves in that game. And we also have to remember that Ron Tugnut was the losing goalie in the longest overtime game in the modern era. Philadelphia Flyers, Pittsburgh Penguins, We were I remember it because I remember waking up in the morning because I was... I was I was young. I was only 11 years old at the time. My God, I feel old after saying that. And May 4th, 2000, where Keith Primo scores in the fifth overtime, Ron Tugnut in that game allowed two goals on 70 shots, 72 shots, made 70 saves in that game. And he he was just a, a battler. And, and I spoke to someone 
who, <laughs> who had him in Columbus. And I think we all know who I'm talking about. Ron Tugnut was such a popular player with the Columbus Blue Jackets. When he spent his two years there, there was a presidential election going on. And some of the fans actually put Ron Tugnut's name up in the ballots for presidential election. Because in the U.S., you can have write-ins. And Ron Tugnut was so popular that he was a write-in by many a Columbus Blue Jackets fan. I mean, we're talking about wasting votes. That kind of sits at the top of the list. But interesting nonetheless. And and Doug McLean, then president of the Columbus Blue Jackets and GM, signed Ron Tugnut to a four-year, $10 million deal. And Ron Tugnut was so happy that he had signed this deal, he went and bought a boat. And the boat he left at his cottage was named the SS McLean because essentially Doug McLean bought him this boat by signing him to a four-year, $10 million deal. I don't know how many boats Doug McLean has named after him, but we certainly know one. And like Doug says, I'm not, I don't know if it's true, but I'm just telling you what I heard. And that is the Ron Tugnut story that, that was told to me by Doug McLean, who was out in a big pickleball match today, right before I had spoken to him. So that's our random player of the day, Ron Tugnut, the Scarborough, Ontario native, a veteran of 538 NHL games. When I saw that number, I was, I know he had played a long time, but I was very surprised to see that number and, and a, a very fruitful career, um, Talked about being a part of hockey history, the longest overtime game in the modern era, and the most saves in a regular season game. Uh, history looks kindly upon Ron Tugnut and his NHL career. So thank you very much to Christopher J for sending that in. If you have any other random players of the day, please send them in. Show at sportsnet.ca. So we'll wrap things up here, the Jeff Merrick Show. And... It's been it's been an interesting week. I mean, we we saw the Seattle Kraken's winning streak snapped and they go on and they lose two in a row and then they go out and beat the New Jersey Devils last night in overtime. Steven Stamkos scores goal number 500 on his career and then proceeds to add two more. Uh just a a fun week in the NHL as it as it usually is. Uh Jim Rutherford's press conference started off the week and boy, did Jim give us some nuggets. Uh, Jim, by the way, for those that don't know, um, hometown of Beaton, Ontario, lovely little place in Ontario, about an hour north of the city, uh, also happens to be where I reside. So a uh, shout out to Beaton, Ontario. Um, tomorrow, Hockey Day in Canada starts 11 a.m. The PWHPA, their showcase game between Team Scotiabank and Team Adidas. That one is on Sportsnet. You can watch that at 11 a.m. Eastern. Then the NHL games kick off 3 o'clock Eastern, the Lightning at Flames, and then 7 o'clock, two games, Maple Leafs at Canadians, which will be a lot of fun. Then we have Jets at Senators, and then we also have to finish things off, the Oilers at Canucks. Hockey Day in Canada from Owen Sound, Ontario tomorrow, and that should be a lot of fun. It's been a fun week for me. Thanks for hanging out with me for the last couple of days. Thank you to my guests today, Elliot Friedman, as always, from Hockey Night in Canada, and 32 Thoughts, Luke Fox from Sportsnet, as he gets ready for Habs and Leafs tomorrow night. Ron McLean, the legend himself, joined me at the top of the second hour. We talked about Hockey Day in Canada, among a lot of other things. 
And just now you heard from Eric Engels from Sportsnet as we talk about the Montreal Canadiens and the swoon that they're in and what the rest of the season looks like there. For Behind the Glass, Derek Brandale, my technical operator, and Jen Rolnick making me look good. At least that's what I think. Thanks for watching the Jeff Merrick Show. Jeff's back on Monday. Have a wonderful weekend.